0: You may be seated. And as you are, will you turn to 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning, covering verses 26 through into the second chapter, into verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 26 through 2.5. Let's read that together, the whole thing. If we can, actually start in verse 23 to get a run-up to this section. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, if uh, you're aware of what's happening in America and on the news and uh, those kinds of things, you know there's a big weekend coming up next Sunday. Uh, for all you. The the whole world seems to be engaged on this. It's a a highlighted event for America. I think around 60 million people watch this event, and everybody's divided on this event. Billions of dollars go into this event. Why? Why? Because of glory… Right? Somebody's like, what are you talking about? The Super Bowl! I heard it over here, whispered. The Super Bowl, of course. It gets later and later every year, does it not? I think that has something to do with money. Later and later every year, we make a big deal about this. Companies pay big dollars to get their ad in and to beat out or get the bid over another company that would have 60 million viewers watching their commercial for their company or their product instead of somebody else. And we advertise, right? Because advertising works and it catches our eyes, it catches our attention, it catches our pocketbooks, it catches our values, right? There's a lot of eyeballs looking at the screen next Sunday. I'm not here to condemn football or the Super Bowl. That's not the point. The point is that it gets our attention, and there's glory in that for a typical American. And even if you don't care at all about football, you know about the Super Bowl, and you probably hear about some of the commercials, or you might see some of those commercials run for a few weeks after the Super Bowl, or Whatever you think about the Super Bowl, you know about the Super Bowl, and you know how big of a deal it is. And as Americans, we, we idolize more than the Super Bowl, right? There's, there's more than just the Super Bowl going on, but that is one of the things that we love to glory in. Why? Because as Americans, we've somehow ascribed that level of value to that particularly of particular event on a Sunday afternoon in the month of February. It's kind of amazing how va- uh, cultural values gain steam and build over the years and decades and maybe even centuries when it comes to something like football. And you and I do this as well, right? If it's not football, it's something else. We ascribe value to things, which means we're assigning some amount of glory To a person, to an object, to a concept, to an institution, to anything that we put our minds toward and our eyes toward, we're ascribing some type of value, some type of glory. And of course, it doesn't stop at sports. It can be just about anything, right? It can be family, it can be relationships, it can be career. Anything you want, just name it, and if it's not God, our eyes can go toward it and stay on it, and unfortunately allow our hearts to be distracted by those things that probably start out as good but could become tempted in time and those cultural values rub off on us rather than us rubbing off on culture. I think our Corinthian brothers were not too much different. I hope you remember that you know you are Greco-Roman, right? You are, you are all Greco-Roman in some way we are that way we are as a culture we think of war in the way that romans the romans thought of war in some ways we think of philosophy and art and civility and putting down roots and are in our governmental institutions as greeks that's where that thinking comes from so in a in a very essence those people are in some ways our ancestors. It doesn't matter if you're not Greek or you can't trace your heritage that far back 2,000 years ago, but in thought and in value, we are Greco-Roman. Look at our our highest institutions of the land. How was the Supreme Court building built? Does it look like something that came out of Africa, or does it look like something that came out of Asia, or does it look like it was transplanted from the area, from Ephesus itself, and put in Washington D.C.? Those values have come over from year to year, and we ascribe glory to all these things. Of course, the Corinthians—you have uh, this in front of you. You've been you've been listening to Michael preach chapter one and show us how the Corinthians were really putting glory in. Man were they not in Apollos or Paul himself or Peter? Um, perhaps the, there was those who were saying, "Well, I'm of Christ. I'm above it all." And divisions began to show themselves among the Corinthians because of such a, that their, their esteem for man, and that was their culture. Where I, I, I believe it was Michael a couple of weeks ago said that that you could even go to be entertained by. A debate, like that was entertainment of the day, was to go see uh, people spar uh, in philosophy. And they ascribed value to these things that eventually were, in a sense, beginning to show the cracks in, in the church of Corinth. So Paul is addressing here really helping them go back to say, do you know who you really are? In Christ. And we've titled the message this morning, Knowing How to Boast, because we all boast or we all glory in something. It's just a matter of what do we find our glory? What do we rest in? What do we boast in? So the immediate context here shows us that this is what the the Corinthians were about. And the broader context, if you remember right, the Corinthian culture would esteem these things that, of course, the Corinthians are coming out of, or the Corinthian church are coming out of these values. They're being sanctified, in a sense, away from these values. But still, nevertheless, they are, they are part of them, and Paul is inspired by God's Spirit to speak to them. Notice what the, verse 25 says, if you would look down at it. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul here is seeking to demonstrate that the best thing that man could ever come up with in his thought couldn't come up with the cross. And the most powerful sign that a Jew could ever come up with would never be a crucified Messiah. They would never come up with, I have a great idea. I know how God's going to figure this out. I know how God's going to solve the Genesis 3 problem of sin and separation of God and man. He's going to send a Messiah and kill him. Nobody came up with that except God alone, a crucified Messiah. And Paul is here to prove that that sounds so foolish and so powerless But everything is in the cross of Christ. It's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. So when he speaks of power, in a sense, he's speaking to the Jews looking for signs. And when he speaks of wisdom, he's speaking more directly to the Greeks looking for that wisdom. So in our passage this morning, I want to show how to really boast Properly, how to boast in the cross of Christ, lest we end up even accidentally or by default boasting in our own flesh. So, first of all, in verses 26 through 29, we need to consider our calling. It's right there in the text. In the ESV, that's exactly what it says. For consider your calling. That's the imperative to think about, to meditate on. You could even say to contemplate where you came from. Paul is, is, is describing to the Corinthians saying, do you want me to show you that God moves in foolish ways or in powerless ways? This is very humbling. Are you ready for it? Paul is saying in our modern lingo, go look in a mirror and you'll understand how powerful God is and how He chose to work in a very weak way. When God drew them Paul is saying he's not looking for the best and the brightest. I know that's, this is gonna, you're going to have a few toes stepped on this morning. I don't know how smart you think you are or how powerful you think you are, but Paul is here to tell us through the text of the Corinthians this morning that consider your own calling, brothers. And what does he say? Not many of you were wise, or the word there is for sophists, where we get the word what? Sophisticated. All right. There was actually a philosophical group named the Sophists. It's hard to say, S O P H I S T S. The Sophists. All right. Uh, just like the Epicureans or the Stoics, there was the Sophists, and they were the wise ones. Okay. That's where we get that word. Second of all, it says, not many were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. That's where we get our word dynamite. Dunamis is the word there. Not many of you were of mighty stock. Uh, You can hear Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, even these early verses. And then he comes in verse 31 to quote it later. The last one, the last grouping is, he says, not many of you were of noble birth. And this is where we get the word eugenics. All right. It's interesting. That's that's eugenesis is where is this is the, the, the word is what he's talking about is your genealogy, your DNA was not of nobility. So you weren't wise, you weren't powerful, and you weren't of noble birth. But notice the, the phrase Happens three times. He says, Not many of you. When he says, Not many of you, meaning that there are a few, right? So he's not saying that God's kingdom is not for the wise, or God's kingdom, God never calls those who are of noble birth, or God never calls those who are powerful. He's simply saying, Not many. So they're not excluded either. But Paul is trying to demonstrate to the Corinthians to say, When God looks out at the seascape of humanity and man is judging all these different things across that seascape as valuable, less valuable, this is important, this is not important. Do you think God, when He looks at that humanity, is using the same criteria that man does? So would it demonstrate the power of God or the love of God or the mercy of God if God looked at man as man looks at man and says, you know who I'm going to pick? I'm going to pick the top, the top tier, the cream of the crop, the wisest, the strongest, and those who are of noble birth. In order to demonstrate my power, I'm going to make sure the best are coming with me. God is not saying that, is he? God does not look at things the way man looks at them. You have to ask yourself, why does man see like that? Why does man esteem in a way that God does not… God's worldview is not our worldview, you could say. Why does man look at life like that when God does not? I don't know about you, but I don't particularly enjoy being weak. Do you enjoy being weak? You wake up in the morning and say, man, I wish I was weaker today. (laughs) We're usually complaining about the opposite, right? You're like, oh, man, this this did not used to creak, or this did not used to feel like this when I woke up in the morning, or I didn't used to care so much about my pillow. (laughs) You know what I mean, huh? I found myself at Ikea last week, and I I, I did not go in there for pillows, but I came out with Two pillows. Thinking, ah, yes, this will improve my state of being. Why? Because I care about those things. I'm trying to get better sleep, not worse sleep. I'm trying to, in a sense, retain some strength, not lose strength. And sleep helps do that. Just a silly anecdote, but we don't like being weak. We certainly don't like being foolish. I don't like being the butt of a joke or on the wrong side of an argument saying, I can't wait to be on the minority of this and to end up looking really dumb. We don't think like that. Nor do we write up a lot of articles in those magazines you pass by at any store. Are we writing about the least of these are the faces on those magazines people you never know or care about in some obscure place on God's planet? No. You know who's on those tabloids. I'm not saying you read them, I'm just saying you know some of the faces, right? I think some of them are neighbors, right, down here in in Montecito. Uh, sometimes they show up on those magazines. Why? Because they're popular, and there's influence there, and they're of noble birth, and we care about those things, and we're just all into them. We're not looking for the most obscure person to to read about. We're looking for those of noble birth. But when I think of this, I think of how Paul also said in Romans chapter 8, he says, after contemplating God's amazing love for humanity and that love can never be broken in Christ. He says this, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Isaiah says it this way, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, sorry, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord And also in Isaiah, he says, I will set aside the understanding of the experts. God's ways are higher, right? God's ways are infinitely beyond what we can understand. Yet we can understand at least this much of them, of what he's revealed to us. And we can understand that I don't look at things the way God looks at things. And Paul is here reminding the Corinthian, go to the mirror and look at, remember that you were not the wisest person. You were not the most noble person. You weren't the strongest person. And God chose you. God drew you effectually toward Him to demonstrate His power. Maybe an example that we could get from Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember what, John, what Jesus tells Nicodemus there that you must be born again? That is such a good analogy. I'm not just complimenting Jesus here. Uh, it's such a helpful analogy to understand what really happens in the human heart when you are saved. Why? Because do you, any of you remember your birth? Do you remember that? Wasn't it a great day? Remember how, like, how much of a hero you were or heroine? You were the center of attention, right? Right? You, you did all of that. No, no, you didn't. <laughs> God did that through your mother and father. And if anybody's the hero, it's probably mom. But even that, God, God gave you life. You had nothing to do with your physical birth. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you have nothing to do in that sense with your spiritual birth. And this is the way man is humbled when you think about when you were called, that was all God's doing. I think of that line from the hymn we sing sometimes that He, he says, nothing in my hands I bring. Do you remember the next line? Simply to the cross I cling. So, not, there's nothing inside of me that I can give. Nothing that, that I'm wise, I figured this out, I'm strong enough. It's all God. And Paul is saying to the Corinthian here in these first few verses, God chose. Look at verse 27. Just to make sure, he's saying really the opposite here. God chose what is foolish. That's the opposite of wise. In order to shame, shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame what's the opposite, to shame the strong. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, this is a little play on words here, things that are nothing to bring to nothing, things that are, the inferred word there is something. So God uses nothingness to humble somethingness, if we can make up a word. That's what Paul is saying here. Is God switches that on man's creativity and his ingenuity and he's, he's saying, through the cross, man, all of man, is humbled. Second of all, not only consider your calling, but look at this in verses 30 through 31. We need to give credit to Christ. Give credit to Christ. We often don't stop and consider, and this is why communion, again, is so helpful, even as it happens to be this morning. the first Sunday of the month, to give credit to Christ for what He has done. Look at verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of what God has done, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, Paul is saying not only to consider your calling, look at, who you're, <laughs> look at who you were, and now look at the opposite of that. Stop staring at the mirror and turn around and look at what Christ has done for you and give credit, give all the credit to Him. We have to stand back and realize, and we sing songs about this, in Christ alone, in Christ alone I stand. That's, that's where we gain our standing. That's where we gain our foothold. And we could go into a whole sermon or series, which we won't, but of this in-ness theology, to be in Christ, places you in a status or in a place that is when God looks at Christ, he's lo- or lo- when God looks at you, He's looking at Christ. That's being in Him or protected in Christ. Uh, Paul uses that phrase frequently in his epistles. But because God, this is his argument in Romans chapter 6, because God killed Christ on our behalf, and he buried him, and he resurrected him, our inness in Christ did all of those things. So now, where do we sit or where do we stand with Christ? In the heavenlies. We are in. We've d- we've done the whole process with Christ. We've been born. We've been bar- we've we've died with Christ. We've been buried with Him. We've been resurrected with Him. We've been exalted with Him. All of this is giving Christ the glory. That's why that's always beneficial for the Christian to plumb even deeper into the cross of Christ. Don't let the cross just stay this uh, perhaps the story you've already always known or. Well, I know Christ, so I know really the expanse of it. We're, we're only scratching the surface. We're only scratching the surface. And the, 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 not just the concept, but the reality of what is in the cross, the eternality of what happened there, the infinity of what happened at the cross, it would be, we, we couldn't even get our minds around if He did it for just one of us. But to the fact that He did it for all who would believe in Him, there's there's a mind-bender for a minute. Like, how did Christ actually... And theologians wrestle with these things and try to plumb the depths of the implications of the cross of Christ, yet we can still not get there. So, I encourage you to think specifically with me this morning. Look at verse 30 again. It says, He became to us... So, Christ becomes to us wisdom... From God, And I believe these next three words really unpack what that wisdom looks like. If you want to know what real wisdom looks like, how to, um, to think about this. Jesus Christ is our righteousness, so that means we have proper standing now with God. So Jesus becomes our wisdom, which is our righteousness. Our righteousness is now I can stand before God... In an uncondemned manner, because of what Christ has done for me. Now I'm sanctified. He's also my sanctification. I'm sanctified, as in First Corinthians chapter one, We've already looked at this. First uh, Corinthians chapter one, verse two. He says to the Church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Verse nine. He talks about being called. Uh, other places in verse in First Corinthians, in chapter six, he talks about those who are sanctified. Other places in Hebrews talk about those who are being sanctified. But the author of Hebrews also says those who are sanctified. So it's both a present reality, but it's also a continuing process. And Paul is saying Jesus Christ becomes. Let's make it a little bit more accessible of a word. Jesus is your holiness, is what Paul is saying. Jesus is why you stand holy, not because of you, but because of what He has done. He's our sanctification. Last word there, it says He's our redemption. So, it'd be one thing to have a proper standing and not to be under God's wrath, and to be holy, and to maybe stay in this static relationship with God. But Jesus Christ is also, he says, our redemption, which means what? That Christ now has paid the ransom price, the purchase price, to bring us back into God's nearness. Not just to stand properly, um, not just to be holy in our being, But to be in right relationship and to enter God's presence. So it makes sense that he then quotes Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24, saying, So that it's written, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let him boast in the Lord. You think about this for a second boast in the Lord. Think about how foolish the cross of Christ appears to the average person think about how it appeared to those who walked by and mocked Jesus while he was on that cross said if you hey if you're the Christ great why don't you take yourself down now let's see how powerful you are the jew would say the roman soldier would do what mock him, punch him, create this crown of thorns and press it down on his brow to make him bleed, put a purple robe on him. What is all of that? That's mockery. Like, okay, king, you're king? Okay, let's, let's take off my robe and throw it on you. And let's beat him. Let's, let's spit in his face. And as it says, as passerbys went by him, they shook and wagged their heads, thinking to themselves what? How pathetic. How pathetic. This is the guy who came out of Galilee and he was doing miracles a month ago, and now look at him. Are you kidding me? That's what they were doing. It's foolishness to the Greek, and it's... it's it's, the, it's utter, just the epitome of weakness to be hung on a cross and have the Messiah, the Messiah, the Savior, hang there and die. Yet, we sang about it this morning. It says that the ground quaked, the veil was torn in two, the dead were raised to life in that moment of Christ's weakness. Think about this. The weakest, the weakest moment of history became the most powerful act that God had ever done in all of the universe. More powerful I would argue then creating a universe out of a spoken word was the redemption that happened in the flash of that moment or however long not quite sure how time frame worked there when it was was it his last breath was it the hours of dark the 3 hours of darkness not exactly sure but we know that it happened right there on the cross the weakest moment, when you and I would have been tempted to get off that cross, I'll show you how messianic I am. I'll show you that I am the real Messiah. That temptation went, and Christ stays put, and Christ takes the shame, and Christ takes the the blame, and that's all on His shoulders as He hangs on the cross, and you and I would have been saying, how dumb is that? How pathetic is that? And so we need to give credit for Christ. We could not have thought this thing up. You couldn't, spend your enti- you couldn't spend a thousand lifetimes imagining how God is going to be reconciled or man is going to be reconciled to God. How are we going to put things back to the Garden of Eden? How are we going to get Genesis 3.15 fulfilled? God's plan is a cross, a crucified. Check this out. This is irony of ironies. A crucified Savior. He's supposed to save. So, of course, the Jews stumble on that stumbling block. The cross is a stumbling block to them. Why? That didn't look like saving. That looked like dying. And yet, the ironic twist that God is saying, I am saving, because you're missing the point. You think it's all about temporal comfort, and you, th- you think it's about these things that really don't matter at the end of your life when everything is stacked up, and God cares enough to say, I'm going to put humanity back better than the garden, because it's not just going to be two people, it's going to be an earth full of people that glorify Him and are in right relationship with Him. That God was not so short-sighted just to give the Jews a little more more comfort to come and dominate the Romans and let them have the physical space that they always kind of wanted. God is in it for much more than that. He brings us all the way back. He redeems us. He sanctifies us. He is our righteousness. He's the wisdom from God. I want to look at one more point here, which is in chapter 2. If we want to know how to boast, we have to look at ourselves and say, there's not much there, is there? We have to look at Christ, consider and give credit to Christ instead. And lastly, in these first few verses of chapter 2, I think what we see is that we need to determine to use God's plan. Do it the way God told us to do it to really obey the message of the cross. You and I are tempted with this every day to make the cross flashier or more sophisticated than it is or less offensive than it is. Every day, we're, we're tempted at least a little bit to think that um, what's this person going to think of this plan that God said, this is my plan. A dying Savior is how I want it to go. And for everyone who is saved to look on that one God-man and be saved of their sins, that's my plan. That's what I will glorify. That's what I will be. That's the message that I want to go out there. And Paul, faithful as he was, got behind if you will the foolishness of God and he's going to explain really quickly to the Corinthians how he's going to recount to them and kind of let his show show some of his cards or his heart as how he felt about the whole process when he was with them so again let's remind ourselves of what's there and i when i came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of god with lofty speech or wisdom in other words high sounding arguments or words that would make sense to a philosopher that's what he's saying that's what he didn't do it's also in verse 4 and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom Paul is saying, I didn't come thinking, oh, the, the Corinthians are a sophisticated individual or the Corinthians are really smart and they're philosophically minded, but I'm going to go into the synagogue, which is where the Jews are, and so I'm going to have to demonstrate how powerful Jesus Christ actually was through all the signs and miracles that he did. He didn't. That's not what Paul was thinking. And remember where he was coming from. Those of you who have perhaps uh, studied through the books of, book of Acts, you might know that 1 Corinthians, or First Corinthians, Corinth, was not Paul's first stop, was it? Corinth was in some ways one of the last stops on his second missionary journey. But what had happened to Paul, I, instead of turning to Acts, we're going to just recount some of those things. What had happened to Paul, I think, however you want to say it, Lystra or Lystra, You remember what happened to him there after they rejected that they're not gods? What did the people do? They turned on him, and they stoned him, and he was pretty much dead, and it took a miracle probably to raise him up, and he walked back into the city. And what does he do? Well, that didn't work. I got stoned for that message. Maybe I should change things a little bit here. Okay, that happened in Lystra. That happened on this missionary journey in particular when he came to Corinth. This is is kind of the end of the road where he received that Macedonian call. Remember that vision where he was, I believe, in, in the city of Ephesus. I can't quite remember where he was when he received that vision. But he said, hey, come over to Macedonia and help us. He received the vision. He goes to Philippi. What happens in Philippi? He gets beaten and thrown in jail. Then what happens in Thessalonica? The Jews stir up the crowds, and they kick him out of Thessalonica. What happens in Berea? Even though the Bereans, it says they're more noble than the Thessalonians, same thing happened in Berea. They stirred up the crowds, and he got kicked out of Berea, so he goes to Athens. In Athens, he's rejected at Mars Hill because he's not sophisticated enough. For their high-sounding, lofty speech and arguments. From Athens, he goes to Corinth, which is about from here to Malibu, okay? It's about an hour drive. I Googled it. I'm like, how far are these two cities apart? That's about an hour drive. If you're to do it today, which is probably a strong two-day walk, maybe three days, uh, but what is Paul thinking? you ever put yourself in the shoes of Paul? What is he thinking on the way from Athens on his way to Corinth? You wonder if he was thinking, is this really working? I'm nervous about those believers in Thessalonica. I, I, I don't know if they're going to hold on to their faith with all this persecution coming down on them. I wonder how that jailer is doing who, con- who converted in Philippi. I wonder how he's, he and his family are doing. Are they able to sustain against the pressure of that pagan town? And I just wonder if Paul was ever tempted. I'm not saying he was, but I can only imagine the thoughts that were going through his mind or, or doing this before he came to Corinth. Like, okay, okay here we go again. I'm going to go into synagogue. <laughs> I'm going to prove that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. He's none other. That's what I'm going to do. And you can read that in Acts 17 and 18. I encourage you to do that. Read what Paul does. He goes from Athens and being rejected in Athens, although a few believe. says a couple, a couple of people believe there. So he goes to Corinth. Maybe just as sophisticated maybe just as cocky as Athens, maybe just as high-minded as Athens. And what does he do? He goes to synagogue. He teaches and he preaches. And God actually encourages him in a dream and says, hey, keep on preaching the word here. I've got many people in this place. Do it confidently. So Paul is determined to practice God's plan. What he didn't do, he didn't, he didn't use lofty speech and plausible words of wisdom What he did instead is he does this. He proclaims, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul's really honest with the Corinthian here, isn't he? It says in in Acts chapter 18, it's actually when he said, he goes to the Jews in the synagogue and for for these weeks he tries to persuade them, they finally reject him again. And he shakes out his garments on them and it says that Let me find it. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul would use the Old Testament Scriptures and say, see all these? Those were fulfilled in this man, Jesus. Jesus just, he came, this, this is who the Messiah is, is his name is Jesus it says that he left the synagogue and the, the, the ruler of the synagogue becomes a, a believer. God gives him that reaffirmation through that dream. And it says there's many in this, this city who are my people. And he stays there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That was Paul's, that's a very quick overview of Paul's, Paul's ministry in Corinth. Faithfully proclaiming that the Christ was Jesus, that, Christ, that Jesus was a crucified Savior. And this is also what Peter says in his sermons in, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, is he says, you know what? You hung Jesus on a cross. He doesn't, he doesn't back away from that. He goes right after the hearer saying you are the ones that put our Savior on a cross. Even though it was God's foreordained plan to do that, you're responsible both, and you did it through the, 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 this is paraphrasing now, you did it through the manipulation of the Romans. You used the Romans to do it, but you're on the hook for doing it. That's what he says in three of his sermons. I just can't help imagine that Paul is wondering sometimes if this is really the plan that God wants him to do. And Christ reaffirms it in a dream, says, go on preaching in my name. Why? Because a crucified, listen to this, a crucified Savior is at the middle of our message to the lost. A crucified Savior Hey, I'm coming to save. Oops, I got killed. Would that work in in, in any other context? No. But God intended for that irony to be the message that will be proclaimed for all of history. That is why Paul says next, I didn't come with those words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, in other words, what man could come up with, but in the power of what God could do in that moment as Jesus Christ is crucified. That's how the Spirit comes in power, is He doesn't just come through miracles, although Paul could be inferring that here, Jesus Christ comes and regenerates the heart of man, gives new birth, is demonstrated through the fruits of the Spirit. That's how God worked in Corinth. He also says a very similar thing in 1 Thessalonians, that when I came preaching to you the gospel of Christ, you believed it. You turned from idols to the true and living God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the power of of the Spirit among you. And let me encourage you this morning that anytime time God by His grace gives you that miracle of life and even more so the miracle of, the, of change and continued sanctification so that you're thinking differently than you were five years ago and you're living differently more than you were five, ten, even could be five months ago, you look at why you do such things. Is, is it not because the mind of Christ is in you? Shaping you away from yourself that our Adamic DNA wants to come back to, but that it's, it's constantly being redirected to Christ. That's the power of the gospel. I want to read this, this verse in as we close, 1 Corinthians 6. I think Michael has read it before. This, this is power. You want to see what power is? Look at verse, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians. i oh, sorry. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the spirit of power. And such were some of you, past tense. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. There's our word again you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. When He takes someone who wants Himself, when she idolizes what she wants more than anything, and God says, we're going to flip that for God's glory by the, by the message of the gospel that brings the Spirit into a man or a woman and they stop living for themselves. That's why we read that verse in 2 Corinthians 5 this morning, that I would no longer live for myself, but I start and begin and continue and by God's grace make it to the end, God doing that in and through me the whole time. Why? As we look at the last verse there, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we know these are your words even of power this morning. Um, and we we look at what Paul was inspired to write to the corinthians and is as long ago as it was it it still is alive today and we can sense it we know lord that we were nothing um, obscure Um, and yet you chose us to glorify yourself to show that every man must boast in you and not in self And Father, I pray that this message this morning, these words of of the cross, Lord, would lead us to less of ourselves, more of You. God, that we would know how to boast in the cross and not be ashamed of it, but to present it to all men as the plan that You chose to demonstrate your power and your wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning in our lives. Father, use this time of remembrance for your glory and to allow the, just these, these elements, Lord, to be used in a way that would remind us of your grace, penetrate our hearts in a new way, carry uh, the remembrance of you and your cross uh, in our hearts and with us each day. Fathers, we live out our lives with fear and trembling here in the city of Santa Barbara. Uh, we thank you and we give you the, the praise for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.